I'd like to introduce our next speaker, John Bishop. He's a physician assistant. Uh, he's also a multi-surgical specialty certified professional coder through the AAPC and has been an active surgical physician assistant for the past 38 years. He is the president of John Bishop and Associates, LLC, a surgical medical encoding reimbursement compliance consulting company. He is proficient in numerous surgical specialties. John has also developed and published several coding, billing, reimbursement manuals for burns, trauma, wound management, and plastic surgery. Plus, he has contacted or contracted with several universities and large multi-specialty groups as the consulting educator uh, for several universities and large multi-specialty groups as a consultant educator on coding and reimbursement. He is a past president of the Florida Academy of Physician Assistants. He is also a national presenter for coding and reimbursement companies. John has recently appointed the national chairperson for the American Academy of Physician Assistants Reimbursement Work Group 2011 through 2013. Please help me in welcoming John Bishop. Thank you. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Now that I'm all itchy after listening to that first lecture, I'm not sure what I should do. Um, my job for the next hour is to teach you how to make money. Anybody want to make money? And how many, how many of you want to make a lot of money? Well, you're in the right profession. How's that? About 70% uh, of dermatology patients end up having some type of a procedure, and this is the wrong lecture that you gentlemen have up here, by the way, folks. The, uh, the uh, gentleman for the computers, we need to switch the lectures. The procedures should be the first one up, not modifiers. They'll get it here in a minute. Anyway, about 70% of patients that come to see us really end up having some type of a procedure. So I'm really going to focus this first 50-ish minutes on procedures, making sure you know what you need to be doing. And more importantly, not so much from the clinical end, but really from the documentation, reimbursement, and what we need to be doing here. So just as a humbling reminder that when we talk about, thank you, when we talk about, um, are we talking about something that is superficial? There's a clinical definition, there's a reimbursement definition, and they don't always work. And while I'm saying that, let me just remind everybody, almost regardless of what I say this morning, everything that we do as providers is really now mostly regulated by the insurance carrier that we are currently dealing with for that particular patient. So what does that really mean? Well, if you live in Florida, where I'm from, we have a Medicare program called First Coast Service Options. If you live in California, you have a different one. If you live in Idaho or New York or Connecticut or wherever, we have regional in Medicare carriers or statewide carriers. We also have all the major private insurance carriers, the big ones that most people know about, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Cigna, Aetna, United Healthcare, all those. They all have different rules, and they're all allowed to have different rules. So when you are seeing somebody and you decide, you know, Mrs. Jones, I need to biopsy this for whatever reason you decide, 
the biopsy is done however you do that. We're going to get to that here in just a second. The issue is how am I going to get paid for this comes down to who is the insurance carrier, what is the diagnosis or diagnoses, what procedure or procedures did you do, was it preceded by an evaluation process, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of things built into that. I gave you a lot of references. I gave you a lot of resources to go to when you get your slides uh, that you can pull up from your uh, thumb drive that you got earlier. Uh, certainly, these are not an exhaustive list by any means, but they are certainly all there. Uh, the AAD is an excellent resource if you have access to that. Uh, certainly, the SDPA is another excellent resource. So what are the risks and, and areas that we need to worry about? Well, did you provide a service and did you bill for it correctly? Did you provide a service and not bill for it? Did you not provide a service and you still bill for it? That's called fraud, by the way. Um, there's a lot of things that are on here, and I don't need to go through all of this. How you bill it. Do you bill it under your provider number? Do you bill it under your physician, supervising physician, provider number? A lot of different issues come into play here. It's almost easy for me to say there's no one right answer anymore. I'm not sure that there ever was. It's only taken me 30-some years to figure a lot of this out. So with all that being said, so what are some other problem areas? Just out of curiosity, how many of you have actually taken some kind of a formal recognized course in coding, billing, documentation, any of those combinations? Show of hands, anybody? Probably most of you in this room, the answer is no. So I'm going to remind you of that when we come back after the break about some other reasons why I'm asking that. Everything we do has to be documented. And I'm, I really hate that word because we throw it around all the time. Well, people get up in your face. Well, you didn't document it very well. You need to document this. You need to document that. What is the point? The point is when we were in PA school, we learned how to document based on doing an adequate history, doing some type of relative and physical examination, arriving at what we now today called through medical decision-making, a working diagnosis, and therefore a plan of care of what we're going to do for and to this patient. All that is in our head, and I'm going to tell you right now, you need to learn, if you haven't learned how to do it, you need to learn how to get it from your head to the computer, to the piece of paper, to your pencil, whatever you are using to document with. And I'm going to tell you exactly why. Most providers lose money in whatever they did for those 42 patients they saw today or yesterday because they don't document accurately or adequately to defend the service or services that they are claiming when they submit a bill. And I'll enlighten that even more as we go on. Specifically in dermatology, do you do a procedure and an E&M on the same day? What is an E&M? Evaluation and management. What we call an office procedure. Well, most of you are going to say, well, of course we do. How else are we going to determine that we need to do something? Well, I'm going to caution you right now. Most insurance carriers are clamping down 
and have been. There's been a huge trend in the last couple of years, and it's only going to get worse in 2013. They are clamping down the fact that they recognize that you need to see a patient, but you did some type of a procedure in the office. In a, literally all dermatologic procedures done in the office are what are considered minor procedures, according to CPT and to Medicare and all the other insurance carriers. What is a minor procedure? A minor procedure is one that's billed as either zero global or up to 10-day global days. That means that all the care, any office visits, removal of sutures, staples, blah, 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 and a physical examination are all bundled into the price that they are paying you for that service. Therefore, that whole E&M is at risk. And I'll talk more about that actually after we come back from the break. Did you put a modifier on it? If so, is it the right one? Did you excise it? And if you excised it, what instruments did you use? Did you use a curette versus a scalpel versus an 11 blade versus a 15 versus a 12? Did you shave it? Did you excise it? Did you incise it? All those are billed separately and differently. Did you biopsy this one thing and then did you shave something else? Again, build called something different. Um, and more importantly, and when I lecture to dermatology folks, it is how did you close whatever it is you did? And if you closed it in other than a standard routine fashion, did you bill for it? So we're coming to all that. Medical necessity. It is very fair to say in 2012, 2013, everything we as providers do to and for a patient has to be answered as, is this service medically necessary? Here comes the caveat. It's not your and my definition of medical necessity. Clinically, it is what is it from the insurance carrier's perspective? If you really want some fun reading sometime, you know, later at night, get two big glasses of wine like I do, get on your computer, and look at some of these insurance carriers' rules and recommendations and requirements for you and I. I was looking late last night, as I said, uh, at some of the rules for skin biopsies, routine closures, uh, things... Um, uh, there's some other things that I was looking at, just kind of making sure I was kind of covering all the bases for all the United States, although each area still has its own little nuances. And I was rather surprised to find when I looked at five different major Medicare carriers, they had five different definitions of medical necessity. Admittedly similar, but still somewhat different. All right. So, very quickly, a neoplasm, is it bad or good? We don't know yet. A lot of people say neoplasm, oh, you mean a cancer. No, I don't mean that at all. I mean, it's a thing. It's a growth. It's all it is. So you have to be careful what you call something. It's abnormal? Sure it is, because it's not supposed to be there. Morphology, that's a pathological diagnosis. How many of you do MOS in your offices? Anybody? Uh, about a third. Okay. So... 
you are very familiar with the, with the term morpho morphology and its whole definition, and I won't go there. Do you get paid for doing MOS? Of course you do. There's a whole separate set of rules for doing MOS only. I have a lot of feedback and echoing in this, by the way. I'm sure it's because of my quiet voice. Uh, I won't lecture on the neoplasm table other than to refer you to the neoplasm table from ICD currently 9. Who knows what we're going to get in another year or so. But it's divided up into six columns. The, the first three columns talk about malignancy, primary, secondary, carcinoma in situ. The next three, it's benign. Uncertain behavior, which is probably the most common code from a diagnostic code that most of us in this room would use literally on a daily basis when we are talking about we did a biopsy of something, we did a shave of something, and I don't know exactly what it is, but I sent it off to pathology to get a final diagnosis. And then finally, unspecified really refers to the pathologist giving you an unspecified diagnosis, which means they are sending out the slides onto other groups around the country to have them take a look at it. Just again, just real quick, I'm just throwing some diagnoses out here. They mean nothing in the context until we put it into context. Skin, standard skin uh, malignancy, 17390, and then there's a whole lot of deviations from that number. Breast, cecum, secondary sites, and then carcinoma in situ. Carcinoma in situ of the skin cancers of melanomas are billed as melanomas currently active. But Otherwise, in other areas of the body, anatomically, it's divided up. And again, I would refer you back to the table for all that. If you know what something is and you're willing to call it something, that's fine. But if you don't know what it is, don't call it something until you know it is that something. Don't say rule out skin cancer because the insurance carrier is going to pick up on that and go, oh, this is skin cancer. The guy's got cancer. We're not going to pay for this now. Or you just screwed this guy out of their long-term disability and their short-term disability and maybe getting more insurance because you called something that it's not. So be very careful of that. All right. Um, basal cell is the most superficial. Squamous cell, the next in layers anatomically when you think of it and when you look at it under a scope. Those two skin cancers together are considered technically superficial, usually not all the way into full thickness. Full thickness defined by CPT as through epidermis, through the dermis, down into the subcutaneous plane, period. That's what they call full thickness. So whatever you may call it, you can call it whatever you want. But if you want to get paid for it, make sure you understand what CPT is going to call it. The references coming, all the references that I'm giving you are all coming out of the current issue of, <coughs> excuse me, of ICD-9, uh, which we are currently in. If you have not heard the controversy of changing from ICD-9 diagnostic criteria, Moving on to ICD-10 uh, in the next year or so. It was going to be next year. Now it's been delayed till October of 2014. 
that's certainly not written in stone. It's probably very sloshy, wet mud at this point. Uh, ICD-10 is a very, 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 very complex system. We are only one of nine countries in the world that are not in ICD-10 at the moment. I remember 10 years ago getting involved in ICD-10 in countries like Hong Kong and Australia, and here we are still trying to struggle with it. Regardless, general coding guidelines you need to follow when you are doing office procedures. I'm not going to beat this to death other than to make sure you get the message that when you are excising something, when you are shaving something, get the right CPT code with the right diagnosis, okay? Um, I'm going to push on here. If you do not know what it is and you end up calling it a rash, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I can bill and get paid for a rash all day long. As long as I get a final pathology report to follow up with so that I can hang my hat on a more definitive diagnosis. Diagnoses need to evolve. We as clinicians need to make sure we understand that, make sure we use that to our advantage, certainly to the patient's advantage, all right? A biopsy. We throw the word biopsy around for lots of lots of different things. So what is a biopsy? Well, when you talk about a biopsy, I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking procedural coding so I can get you paid. So when you start talking to me out in the break room or somewhere about a biopsy, my first question is, what kind of biopsy was it? Did you use a punch biopsy? Did you use an excisional biopsy? Did you use a shave biopsy? Did you magically elevate it off the skin? How did you do it? Why is that important? Because each one of those is coded differently. That's why. Your super bills or your encounter forms or whatever electronic health record system you are using has much of this already built into play. Make sure you understand it literally backwards and forwards. If you biopsy something today, with the understanding that you're probably going to bring that patient back in a couple more days and do a larger excision, the biopsy is billable today when they come back in a couple days, based now on you have a definitive pathologic answer, or at least a better guide of what you need to be doing now. That new visit today has no E&M assigned to it, because we're already three days out or whatever it is, and it's only a procedure-oriented service that you are providing, and modifier 58, which we'll talk about after the break anyway, needs to be applied to that to make sure you are billing it legally and consistently. So I mentioned the, the, the idea of full thickness by CPT's definition. When you excise a lesion to be eligible for any type of reimbursement, the 11400 series is benign lesions. The 11600 series is malignant lesions. The lesion is all based on size. Everything we do in, in uh, dermatology as it relates to how do I get paid for something that I removed relates to size. So size always matters here. And what it is will relate to what area of the code book do we extract it from? 
and I'll come back and talk about tumors in just a minute here. You and I throw around words like history of, what's their status, history of something. What does that really mean from a coding perspective? You saw a patient five years ago in your practice who had active skin cancer of some variety. Right now, I don't care what it was. You excised them, you cured them. They no longer had, then five years ago, they no longer had skin cancer of any variety. So for the last five years, this patient has been cancer-free. What diagnosis is the second diagnosis that this patient came in to see you today because they're worried about this little lesion right here being a new skin cancer? Well, the answer is history of previous skin cancer. And unless you know they have active skin cancer right now, the diagnosis will be whatever you want it to be as a primary diagnosis and then history of, a V-code. If it is a history of a skin cancer, not otherwise named, it is V, V like Victor, 10.83. If it's a history of a melanoma, V, 10.82. That is always going to follow that patient forever. Just like history of breast cancer, history of colon cancer. They follow that patient forever. Family history of skin cancers, family history of higher risk things will always follow them along. All right? This is kind of a breakdown of how when we think about how we're coding things, well, after we've excised it, can we use the primary diagnosis of, are they coming in for any kind of anti-neoplastic therapy? Are they coming in for any uh, malignant screening, et cetera, et cetera. And you can see where they fall in this category of, of, uh, of whether it's primary, secondary, or can be in combinations thereof. All right. Somebody who's positive for HIV but is asymptomatic is always going to be V08. That carries with them forever. You as a dermatology PA need to be utilizing V08 in your population of HIV patients. They may not be here for anything related to HIV, but it's a comorbidity that coexists always, just like diabetes and many other symptoms and many other illnesses follow that same thing. If they've had a previous organ transplant, which I'm going to assume you had nothing to do with, and they're on current immunosuppressive drug therapy for their kidney transplant three years ago. That should be coded by you as a dermatology PA. It's a second or a third or fourth line code down the road. The day of having one diagnosis is pretty well long gone in our practices today. Why is that? Because most of our patients now are either more sick they're elderly, they have more comorbidities, and the way you define a comorbidity is, does it affect or impact your thinking when you are thinking about how you're going to take care of your patient right now? Does diabetes come into play? The answer is absolutely 100% of the time, yes. If you have a patient with you know has diabetes, even though you are not the caregiver treating the diabetes, 
you should almost always be coding diabetes as a secondary or a third code down the line. Why? Because it's comorbidity. Why? Because when that wound falls apart three weeks from now, you go, oh, Christ, the guy's got diabetes. I forgot about that. You should have remembered that three weeks ago. So be very careful about how you're coding stuff when you are excising and doing shaves, et cetera, et cetera. All right, skin tags. Skin tags, there's a million of them. <laughs> they are coded as 701.9. How you excise them or how you remove them without telling them to go home and tie a thread around it like I used to do until I found out I could get paid for it. Uh, it's called cash nowadays. The code 11200 is the CPT code for removal of up to including 15 separate skin tags. So if you document, I remove 42 skin tags, you get the code 11200 plus 11201. And you notice its wording says, each additional 10 lesions or parts thereof, standard CPT language. So if you had, what I say, 42, do the math. Take 15 out of 42, whatever that leaves you, seems to me that gives you about three units of 11201. So for your billing today, you may or may not have had an E&M, that's a separate argument, but you would certainly bill 11200 and 11201 times whatever units I said, three, whatever I said, and the diagnosis is 701.9, period. You're done. Sit back and wait for your money to roll in. Or better yet, get paid up front. It's called cash. All right. Shaving of a lesion. The instrument you use to shave with, a blue blade, a razor blade, a electric scalpel, harmonic scalpel, whatever it is, should be identified when you are excising it and dictating your procedure note. Remember, all procedures done in the office setting must look like a procedure note or an operative report done in another operative setting. Needs to be very separate from your visit note. Needs to be very distinct. Needs to be identified as a procedure note. I do, my company and I do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of audits. The biggest downfall I see in dermatology is they have an E&M, they have a procedure, and it's all run together, and I can't figure out what the heck they are talking about. That's loss of revenue, and that's what I'm trying to prevent from happening. It's all about location, location, okay? So, now, shaving does not mean you excised anything. You never went into full thickness if you shaved. Shaving is just that. It's very, very, very superficial. Think of it tangentially slicing something. Most of the time, shavings need to have, from a Medicare perspective, the nurses or your staff need to have a ABN, Advanced Beneficiary Notice, either signed or witnessed and signed by the patient before you lay hands on that patient. Why? Because many times shavings are not reimbursed by Medicare and actually by many other private carriers as well. Unless... God forbid, it turns into a cancer. Then many of them will get reimbursed secondarily. We'll talk about modifiers later. Some quick examples here, just right out of CPT language. Again, 
this should already be known to most of you, should be on your super bills or your encounter forms. All anatomy is, or all coding for procedures is divided up by anatomy and by size. So if you're, if you're shaving an epidermal or a dermal lesion from the trunk, arms, or legs, and its diameter, widest diameter, is 1.7 centimeters, you would look down at the code. Whoa, sorry about that. Let me get back here. You would look down at the code 11302. I know it's supposed to be working. There it is. Because we said 1.7 centimeters. Notice it's all about the diameter. It's never about length when you excise anything. It's always about its widest diameter. And you always want to relate things when you say, I excised or I shaved a lesion that was 1.9 centimeters long by 1.7 centimeters wide, meaning the diameter. From a billing perspective, all I want to see right now is the width or the diameter because I don't care about the excisional length. You don't get paid for the length until you close it separately above and beyond standard closure. All right. So it is all about location, as I said. And remember, before you excise anything, measure the freaking thing. Because as soon as you take it off the body, what happens? It contracts, right? You just disrupted its blood supply. When it contracts, you just lost half of your reimbursement. If you rely on, because you're too lazy to measure it, when you are doing the procedure, and I meant what I just said, and you rely on pathology giving you the size, you've now lost almost two-thirds of your reimbursement. Why would you do that? Why would you give all that money away when all you had to do is just put a little measuring stick on it and write it down and dictate it and you're done? So, by standard medical convention, we excise something by its diameter and we close things by its length. And when we write it, it's length times width. Just like when you want to paint your bedroom, you go to Home Depot and they say, how big is your room? Uh, it's uh, 15 by 12. So it's 15 feet long by 12 feet wide. Same is true in medicine. So, in the integumentary system, meaning for you and I, the skin down to the full thickness into the um, fat layer, into, the, um, into that layer, we are talking about the integumentary system. Therefore, we are talking about in the full thickness excisions. And with that comes routine standard closure always. If you do any other types of closure, which I've got listed here very quickly here, then we can talk about how you add that and how you're going to get paid. Now, a lot of people say, I need to build, my office has a policy that I bill out every day. I'm going to tell you right now, you're an idiot for having that policy. And the reason being is, if you do not have a pathological diagnosis, there is nothing you can bill for that is going to make you any money yet. So, 
hold your billing for a couple more days until you have a pathological diagnosis to associate it with. Or understand, you only get paid for billing of what you know at the time you did something, whatever that was. So if you excised or did a shave or did a biopsy of some lesion today and your office is going to stick to that policy, then you are billing out only today for the diameter of whatever the procedure was and whatever the unknown diagnosis is going to be. That is for today. There's no other way to make that any better. Now, when that pathology report comes back in two or three or four days, or when you follow up to see that patient again, you have the ability and you have the legal right to now change the diagnosis, but you can't go back and back bill knowing what you now know four days later. Do you understand that? And a lot of people get caught doing that. A lot of people say, oh, I'll just hang on to it till I get all the final stuff, and then I'll just bill from that. Well, you need to bill from what you know today, now what you're going to know in four days from now. That's illegal. So don't do that, and certainly don't do that anymore. All right. When you excise something, you have a defect. You got a hole, whatever it is you did. How you close that hole, how you close that defect, is all depends on the following bunches of slides coming up here. Simple excisions get routine, simple closure, no extra billing. Again, just some, I just pulled some examples up here. None of these have anything special. Malignant lesions, as I told you before, benign lesions come out of the 11400 series. Malignant lesions come out of the 11600 series. Now, you may need a skin graft. You may need a full thickness graft. You may need to take a full thickness skin graft from behind the ear to move it over here, wherever you're going. You may need to take a little pinch graft from the forearm. Uh, you may require flaps. You may require multi-layer closure. All those are separately billable. And we're going to show you here in just a little bit more. Some more examples. Closure of lacerations. Lacerations are billed like everything else. Lacerations now go by length and how you closed it, meaning layers of closure. They include mild debridement already built into the payment structure for doing a laceration. If you repair a laceration of a kid's nasolabial fold, little three-year-old that fell and hit the coffee table, they got a little one and a half centimeter laceration in their nasolabial fold, how you close that is up to you. If you understand plastic surgery type techniques, as most dermatology PAs have been well trained in, and you should, then you can probably get a complex closure out of that, which is billed and paid two and a half times higher than a standard little simple closure. So again, just sample numbers. These are coming from nose, scalp, neck, axilla, external trunk, and genitalia, hands and feet. Very specific numbers, all related to size. Now, notice this said intermediate. Intermediate is also known as layered closure. When you are closing something, you cannot just say, 
I did a layered closure that is not billable by that statement alone. CPT would say you need to define what layers anatomically did you close. Did you close a dead space? Did you close superficial fascia? Did you close deep dermis? Did you close subcuticular? Did you close the skin? You need to say all of those things that are relative and pertinent to what it is that you did. That would be a intermediate or so-called layered closure. You can have an excision plus the billing for a layered closure. You can also have a complex closure. Most of you probably do a lot of this and you just aren't aware of it or you choose not to bill for it. A complex closure involves not only multiple layers, but deep tissue closure, undermining of the skin flaps. Let me reiterate those words, because when you dictate it, there's your buzzwords for you. I had to undermine in multiple directions the skin flaps, the tissue flaps. That, by definition, in CPT, is a complex closure. Totally severally billable, severally payable, above and beyond whatever you excised or whatever you did. The 13,000 series of codes are divided up by anatomy based on, again, total length of closure. Now, why do I harp on this? Because dermatology PAs lose a ton of money because they do this stuff, they just don't bill for it. And I'm telling you, complex closure of a wound that you just excised, thinking that it's going to be some kind of a cancer, it doesn't even matter right now, you're going to lose two and a half times your standard reimbursement because you did it, you just didn't bill for it. Now, First Coast Service Options happens to be my Medicare carrier in the state of Florida. Notice what it says here. It says that the progress record, the medical record, should indicate removal of malignant lesion with a corresponding pathology report or a clinical description consistent with a skin malignancy. The size and location of the lesion must be included in the documentation. Very straightforward. You can't argue with what that says. You as a dermatology PA cannot argue with the fact that, oh, I didn't measure it. Why? Because I'm an idiot. And two, I didn't document it. Why? Because I don't want to get paid. Duh, come on. So I talked about medical necessity earlier. Here's what they are saying constitutes medical necessity. Destruction of malignant skin lesion. Just because you are calling it that doesn't mean it's necessarily medical necessity yet. You need to make sure that this is all in there. If you're going to describe something clinically, without having a pathology report to back you up, you need to get very wordy here. You do not get away with a cheap definition of saying, uh, this is skin cancer. This appears to be a malignancy. Appears to be, smells like, kind of looks like, kind of, sort of, maybe. None of those mean anything. None of those are billable. None of those are even codable. That means you don't know what the hell it is, and that means you code it back to an unknown etiology, meaning 238.2 again, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. So be very careful. 
I, I looked last night at about five or six Medicare websites, just for fun, kind of bored last night a little bit. The third glass of wine told me that all the carriers that I looked at all have their versions of this kind of definitions, all under skin excisions, skin malignancies, skin cancers. They all kind of worded a little differently. If you've never seen that in your area of the country that you come from or your state, probably worthwhile for you to see it. Why? Because you're the one submitting the claim. Why? Because you're the one that wants to get paid for all this work. Why? Because you're the one that's probably missing out on a lot of money. Again, I gave you a ton of references. Documentation, I've harped on a lot. You cannot get away with little, cheap, easy words anymore. You need to be very, you don't have to be overly, you don't need to write a novel. You don't need to dictate a whole verse. But you need to be very succinct and very specific about what it is you are talking about today. When you do destructions of lesions of whatever variety, they are very specific into the CPT coding started in the 17,000 series of whether it is a pre-malignant lesion. What is pre-malignant according to their definition? An AK. And the only diagnosis that is acceptable is 702.04 actinic keratosis. That is considered a pre-malignant lesion. How you destroy that, electrical, chemical, freezing, light the candles, do the dance, whatever it is you do is up to, is up to you. Let me get back here. The, the right set of codes needs to be chosen. And when you look at the number that you do, you notice how the language here is 17003 in the middle bullet talks about is an add-on code to the very first code. And it's built for each lesion, each lesion you do, up to a total of 14 lesions. So if you are destroying 12 AK lesions on the patient's body somewhere, you are billing out a 17,000 plus 17,003 times 11 units. Now, how that carrier once you're billing people or your billing company, whatever you use, how they want you to bill that out on a form, that's up to them. I'll stay out of that argument right now because there's a lot of ways to do that, by the way. And they're all correct depending on who the carrier is. Blue Cross may want it one way. Medicare may want it another way. United Healthcare may want it a totally different way. It's all up to whoever is paying me the money. I'll give anybody anything they want as long as they send me a check for it. How's that? Because that's really where the carriers are right now because they're kind of unregulated. So if you did more than 14 lesions of AK, all that thing I just told you about falls away, and now you go into the 17004. So it all depends on your count, and again, the choices that you are making for the right CPT codes. Let me be very clear here. Look down at the bottom. Any method can be used for destruction of warts. Warts are not AK. Warts are not SK. Warts are warts. Warts come in multiple varieties, according to you, but from a CPT perspective, they are kind of lumped into one category. When you are speaking of destruction codes, when you are destroying telangiectasias or any other type of lymphocele or uh, varicosity of the subcutaneous tissue, 
you are talking about the destruction codes based on square centimeters. So be very, that's 17, 106, 107, 108, something like that in that area. So make sure you are, you are defining that. If you are not destroying an area that's greater than, I believe it's 10 centimeters is the cutoff, the default code is, if you didn't dictate it, you always build the lowest code, period. Doesn't matter what you did, it's what you documented. So, I and D, an incision and drainage includes cursory physical examination, cursory history, and mild debridement. So can I build for an, an IND of this abscess on this guy's neck and I debrided the tissue? Probably not, because it already includes a mild amount of debridement. But if you debrid a whole ton and you get gallons of pus, now you document all that, that's to your advantage, and you can build now separately two different things. Maybe even more, it depends on all the other things you did. There's a whole bunch of guidelines you need to look at from a billing perspective, but from a provider perspective, I'm telling you, you can. Now your billers and coders may need to figure out how to work it all. Now, INDs of anatomic areas other than in the soft tissue, particularly head and neck, are built to the anatomic areas out of the musculoskeletal section. So if you are doing an IND on the leg, you are looking in the codes for IND down in the leg region. Leg is defined as from the knee down to the ankle, not including the foot. Thigh is from the knee, not including the knee, up to the hip and pelvis. Arm is divided up by shoulder, upper arm, not including the elbow. Elbow is defined as elbow to the forearm, including up to the wrist. Hand is not including the wrist, hand and fingers. So you want to choose those codes from those areas. Why? Because they are paid two and a half to three times higher than standard routine skin INDs. Again, word of the wise. Adjacent tissue rearrangement. How many of you do actual moving around of tissue to get something closed after you've excised it in the office? Looks like a few of you. So I'm going to assume the rest of you either don't do it, don't know how to do it, or actually do it, and you just don't charge for it. So I'm going to tell you that you should be, when it's appropriate, charging for this, but make sure you understand the techniques. According to CPT language, Local tissue rearrangement. If you excise a lesion over here in the neck and you got this big hole in the neck and it's deep and you've got the carotid sitting here looking at you, you need to close that. You need to get some adequate tissue coverage over the carotids or anything else that's in there. And then you need to close the fascia, at least the superficial fascia. And you need to close subcutaneous tissue, probably a deep dermis and maybe you do a subcuticular closure to make it look cosmetically acceptable. Great. All those are certainly billable. However, if you recruit tissue from one area to another area and, and move it around so that you fill in and close that hole, that goes to the 14,000 series of codes and your excision code falls out. So, Word to the wise. This is just giving you some rotation flaps. Here's a 
VY-plasty, upside-down Y-plasty, a VW-Y-plasty, all kinds of languages. I don't care what you call it. It's how you define it and how long your, your total size is. With adjacent tissue rearrangement, they go by square centimeters. So you want to know and you want to measure, again, length times width or length times diameter. So if you excise some lesion and then you do a local tissue advancement flap to close that hole and it's 12 square centimeters in the neck, that's going to be the code 14021. That's three and a half times more money than just standard closure with an excision of this area. So if you do the technique, get paid for it. Whole definition of tissue transfers, again, sit, trying to save a little time here because I know there's going to be a break at the end of this. Just understand that tissue transfers, tissue rearrangement, local tissue recruitment, all those words all kind of mean the same thing, but you as the clinician need to define what it is that you are actually doing anatomically when you are doing it. It almost always includes the skin closure with it. Now, you may have a hole on the guy's back that ends up being 35 square centimeters, a huge hole in their back by the time you got done excising all this, let's say, a cancer. Then, how you close it in those big areas usually is by doing one of these tissue rearrangements. Let me get back to that, of some variety. And if you are doing that, then you start, again, you add up this total square centimeters. When you get above and beyond 30 square centimeters, so 30.00001 and greater, falls into a whole nother category, the 14301 category, which is now paid four and a half times as high as your original standard closure was. So, choose your battles here, folks. Some samples of codes that I just kind of spouted off about, again, coming from very specific anatomic areas. Notice it again by anatomic area and by square centimeters in size. It's always anatomic specific. It's the immediate closure. It includes the, skin, uh, the, the excision. We always report it in square centimeters. It is distinct from doing other kinds of rotation flaps or other types of advancement flaps, maybe, or other types of myocutaneous, fasciocutaneous uh, flaps. Uh, and you may actually have a skin graft on top of that, a split thickness skin graft, an epidermal, a dermal skin graft, or a full thickness skin graft. Again, all those are also severally billable. Z-plasty, very common closure in a lot of our dermatologic patients because we want them, particularly when we try to follow Langer's lines, when we're trying to close something, wherever it is, we're trying to break up that scar. They got one in the middle of the forehead. It's kind of hard to break up unless you reverse the order of, this, of the uh, tissue. So Z-plasty, W-plasties, upside down Ys and Vs, and all these things are wonderful at giving them. Now, how do you bill for this? 
You build for this very simply by adding up all your limbs. If you really do this or any of those other techniques, you add all of your limbs. Technically, they should be all relatively equal, but just to be safe and making sure that you get paid the right amount of money, make sure you say how long each limb is. Some other techniques. Pretty standard way to look at it. You take something that's linear, break it up so that you, you go with Langer's lines and it looks much better cosmetically. Uh, if you do other types of flaps and tubes, I can't imagine you doing most of this over in the office, I guess. You could do like forehead flaps, perhaps, and then uh, bring them our labial, uh, nasal labial advancement flaps and leave them attached, bring them back because you did a Mohs surgery a couple of days ago. You did a temporary closure, bring them back, disconnect the flap once it's become vascularized. That I could see doing in the office in some techniques. Sure, that's all billable. If a standard repair of the donor site does not work, meaning simple closure or simple covering, you can also bill for the closure of that donor site. Standard forehead flap in somebody that is difficult to get closed, you will have not only, let's say you did a Mohs down here on the, on the crown of the nose, so you did a forehead flap, brought the flap down, this you can't get closed a week later when you bring them back to disconnect the flap. So now you have this to code for, plus you have the closure of the donor site, where you started from. All easily, separately billable. Pedicle flap, neurovascular flap. Those are flaps that retain by your stated artery. So you need to be using a Doppler and tell me what the artery is that you are leaving. And then a, usually a island pedicle flap is usually brought under, tunneled under, under something else and then put into position. Neurovascular pedicle is just that. The nerve supply is retained and the vascular supply is retained and you dictate and document what the names of those are. Derma fat fascia graft is just that. 15770 is where you take a composite graft. Sometimes we'll take it from behind the ear sometimes from inside the lining of the nose, and we replace an inside cancer of the, uh, inside cancer of the inside of the, of the mucosal lining in the mouth. We may take it from the labia, we may take it from the nose and move it somewhere else. Those are dermal fat fascia grafts. Hair transplants, if you're into that, very, very standard format for utilizing the codes, 15775, and beyond 15 grafts, 15776. Scar revisions are all about, if it's simple, it's simple, that's all you get. But most scar revisions are going to be either layered closure or complex closure or advancement flaps of some variety if you are doing it more cosmetically appropriate. All right. So, again, be careful what you are calling something. Uh, be careful about the location that you are using. Certainly bring up size. Size always does matter. Uh, I want to make sure you get paid for everything that you claim you did. All right, I'm going to leave it there for this first talk. I believe that there's going to be a break, and then we're going to come back, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about the more of the business side of the E&M 
along with modifiers and how to make sure that the E&M and the procedures all get paid uh, together. So if there's any questions, I'll be happy to take those now. Otherwise, I'll let the, uh, the, uh, the bosses uh, tell us what we need to do from here. Any questions first and foremost here? I have a question for ah. you. Yes. Two questions, really. Um, in my area, I'm in Northern California, I did a um, flap closure, and Medicare sent it back and said I was not qualified, therefore they would not pay me. What state are you in? California. What part of California? Northern. That's a very common trick that Medicare loves to do. That is not a true statement. You need to make sure your documentation is in order, first and foremost, really, really, really good. Resubmit the claim to a higher level of appeals and, and show them that you're in the state of California, you have a de delegatory um, law for PAs that the physician defines to you as you have their authority to do that kind of a closure. And so what do you give them for that documentation? Well. The delegatory. Do you give them something, something in writing? That's right out of your state law. Gotcha. Most state laws are delegatory. A few still are regulatory. But California, like Florida, New York, many mm -hmm. of the other larger states are, have delegatory. Meaning, if the doctor says you can do it, you can do it. That's okay. what it really means. That's the short answer. My second question is, um, just clarification, say we've got to rule out melanoma, and they tell us excise the entire thing if you can, and we do. Um, code that for me. Well, a rule out melanoma to me means nothing, because there is no code for a rule out of anything. That means you default back to the 238.2 code until you know what it is. So today in the office, when you are thinking I want to rule out melanoma, so I'm going to excise or biopsy, whatever it is. That is a 238.2 today, because you don't you know anything else. You still do your normal excision, closure, everything on that Whatever you did today and whatever you document today is billed out from what you know today. Now, if three or four days later, like I said earlier, the pathology report comes back as now a known melanoma, that has a positive margin or margins, you need to bring that patient back in and do further excisions or deeper shaving or whatever it is you did. Now today you have a new diagnosis because you now know it's melanoma and you have a different set of code ranges that you're using because now you are using the excisional codes from the malignant lesion, the 11600 series versus what you knew four days ago. So you have two different codes going on. Totally legal, totally billable. Yes, sir. Good morning. I'd like to know um, if, if you wouldn't mind going over the measurement of uh, flaps, just in general, the, the O to Z, for example, how you came up with the uh, measurement for that. Great question. How do we measure flaps? You take, in a Z, as I said, you measure all the limbs and add them up together. So theoretically on a Z for Zorro, you should have three limbs. You measure each one of those limbs, add them together. That, if, think about it, taking a string, if you remember that slide I had, they had a linear excision and then I broke it into the Zs. So think of taking a string, straighten it, make it into a straight line, measure that. Now, when you measure your limbs, 
you are adding up those limbs to coincide with the total length. So that's how you get length. If you ask about flaps, you take length times width, the greatest length of your flap by the widest width. Multiply those two to get square centimeters, then that is that 14,000 series of codes again. Are Does that help? Are you measuring just the, uh, the, the lines themselves, or you're measuring the amount of uh, the, the area that you actually worked in? No, the, the whole total area. Okay, including if, the if undermine. You, if you're, that's a very good question. If your lesion is only, say, 0 0.8 centimeters, but you take a 2 millimeter margin on each side, you now have a 0 0.8 diameter plus 0.2 plus 0.2. So you really have a total diameter now of 1.2 centimeters. So that would be your, your diameter of excision. But as far as the, um, for the repair though, the measurement of the repair. Repair, remember, simple repair doesn't get charged. But for a flap. But for a flap or for a linear repair, it's the total length. Okay, so if you had like a rotation flap and then you also had an implasty in there, you're measuring the total sum of all the scar lines? Yes. For the closure, okay. Yes, Thank you. Total, su total sum. Yes, ma'am. I'm still confused about, let's, let's don't do melanoma. Let's do a squamous cell that looks classic. And I cannot code when I excise it. I cannot code by a malignant code for excision. I have to code a benign code with a 238.2 as I don't know until the path comes back. If you are billing the code today, you don't know that it's a melanoma. You don't know it's a squamous. You don't know what it is. Is that what you asked? But what if I? But you said hold these, hold your billing until the pathology comes back. That's what most of us so, do. And around then we the change. We can change it at that point to you, what it you was. You can change the diagnosis. You can't change the CPT code. Well, but the CPT code is based on whether it was malignant or not. This, but you didn't know that at the time you did the procedure. So all of these cancerous lesions that we remove that clinically we think are cancers and we're doing pathology just to prove margins, we can no longer bill those as malignant lesions. We have to bill them as benign lesions because, because I don't, don't have a pathology Because you don't know report? it's a malignant lesion yet. If you know it's a malignant lesion today, then you can bill for that. No, it's the CPT code. But if you, if you don't know going into today's room that this is a malignant lesion, you are excising it without a known diagnosis. CPT says you default to a benign lesion at this moment. I understand the ICD-9 at 238.2. I'm asking CPT. I have to use a benign code for CPT. Is That's that what, what I just saying? said. Okay. You, you don't know it is a malignant lesion right now, do you? That's a well, yes or a no. Clinically, sometimes I don't know. Clinically on others, I'm pretty sure. Therefore, well, pretty sure means you're not sure. Okay, so those are not billable as So those are not lesions. billable as a malignant lesion yet because you don't know that yet. So in essence, a squamous cell carcinoma can never be removed unless you biopsy first and then come back later when you know what your biopsy says. You can never code a full excision for a squamous cell up front. Is that true. what you're telling me? True, and that's okay. true of all, all malignancies regardless of what it is and where it is. If you don't know what it is going into the office right now, 
There's no way for you to make up a bill for it thinking, well, it's, I think it's going to be a malignancy. You can't bill for that. That's why we tell everybody, particularly in Durham, hold your path report until you have a definitive report. But you can't go back bill and say, well, gosh, I didn't know it was a malignant. Now can I get paid more money now that I know it? No, because you didn't know it at the time you did the excision. They, they hold our billing, I think. They don't bill anything until the path report comes back. Well, let me, my Without staff, looking at it, I can't answer that any better, I guess. My staff says that skin tags are never covered by anybody. They can't get them covered at all. That what are? Skin tags, removal skin of tags. skin I tags. I said it's called cash. Okay. Skin tags cash are benign, fibro fatty garbage, and I don't know any carrier that ever pays for it. Okay, I just want to make so that clear. So I say get an ABN sign and give me some cash. Get your credit card out. Your family history of malignant melanoma, uh, my staff's come to me in the past month and said all of those are being denied by Medicare and they will not pay for anything on the visit if we have family history of malignant melanoma marked. I don't understand that. Do you uh, comment Are on you that? seeing the patient today only, clinically, whenever you see a patient, you must put in your head, why am I seeing this patient right now? Not what I did two weeks ago, not what I may want to do later on, but clinically, what am I doing right now? I'm and seeing this patient right now for new AKs, for a suspicious lesion, and he has a family history of melanoma. Okay. And if I put all those three codes in, they're saying if I use the V code for family history of melanoma, the whole thing is being sent back with no payment. Who is saying this? My office staff. I don't, well, I don't do know. anything I, to do with What the state are you in? North Carolina. You can see me later if you'd like, but they're wrong. Okay. How's thanks. that? I'll make that easy. They're wrong. Yes, ma'am. I just have one question. Can't um, hear you. Generally, when I biopsy, I'll biopsy something and call it neoplasm of uncertain behavior. And then if, if it comes back malignant, I'll send it, say, to Moe's. I won't take care of it myself. So in that scenario, what would be the advantage of holding the bill? So is there an advantage for me to perform a biopsy, hold the bill for two or three days, then call it, you know, basal cell carcinoma. I mean, is that, because I'm not gonna treat it. Uh, let's see, how do I answer that? Well, there is an advantage. The advantage to you and the patient is you now have a definitive diagnosis. There's number one. Number two, regardless of who's going to treat it, they have now a definitive diagnosis. So you just did office. somebody a favor okay. by being able to send this patient on to a consultant or another derm or a plastic or wherever they're going with a piece of paper in their hand that says they have a melanoma, they have a Bresno 0.8 level, blah, 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 whatever it is. So you've actually done the patient a favor and the next provider a favor. Money-wise, did you get anything out of that? that? No. Okay but you did the right thing for the patient. Okay, thank you. Yes, ma'am. I think I'm going back to the same thing, confused about why you hold for PATH. If you can't, get, if you can't go back and bill, why, why do you hold for PATH? Okay, none of this is about money, remember this. You need to think clinically. At the time you see Mrs. Jones at nine o'clock this morning, what is your diagnosis? You don't know it yet. Don't know, right. therefore, you don't know you are excising a, I don't know what it is. CPT says that is a benign lesion, 
until you prove it otherwise. So CPT says the 11400 series or the shaving lesions or whatever you did and the unknown diagnosis most commonly used in skin and derm is 238.2. Yeah. Now, when the pathology report comes in, as I just answered to this previous lady, you now have a definitive answer for your patient. It now is going to guide you on your recommendations to what you're going to do for this patient. Gee, Mary, we can treat it with this. We need to, we need to go in and excise a little bit more. We need to do this. We left it open on purpose. A lot of, a lot of times we do leave them open, thinking it's probably going to be a close call on the margins and they're going to come back. But it, you don't bill for what you thought it was going to be. You bill for what you know right now. Now, that being said, it is standard practice around the country for most of us to don't bill anything today and hold until we get the pathology report. Because now I have a pathology diagnosis of squamous cell carcinoma, wherever it is. And now I have a decision to make after I talk to the patient about what our recommendations are. So don't confuse getting paid and billing for something and the clinical answer, because they are somewhat out of position sometimes. So be very careful of that. Does that help? No, no because when I do my pathology, I say, I mean, when I do the biopsy, I say to my billing people, hold for path on the bottom. Great, perfect. So then what's your question? You should do that. But it doesn't matter. I already billed it out, so why do they care? Why do I they bill it out? No matter what I did, you're saying it has to be billed at that moment. You can only bill for you what you... You can't go back. You can, so that's what's, correct. So what's the point of hold for path if you can't go back? Because you have a definitive diagnosis now. That's the, that's the whole point. Clinically, if you biopsy this little thing on my neck today, and I thanked you and walked out of the office, I have a thing I don't know what the heck this is, and I have some code for excising it. That's a benign code. Right. Now, you call me in five days and say, John, this unfortunately ended up being a squamous or whatever it is. We need to excise a little bit more. Come back and see me next Monday. Okay, I'll be there. They come in next Monday. You now have a totally different diagnosis than what you had last Wednesday, and you use a total different set of CPT codes than what you used last Wednesday as well. Right. But you would do that regardless of whether you put hold for path. You'd still do that anyway, because now you have a, do you know what I'm saying? No. Whether you wrote hold for path or didn't hold for path, you're new, the next time you see them, you know it's a squamous cell now, so you bill as a squamous cell. You bill it as a squamous cell today, because you now know it. Right. And if you excise anything else today, you now are excising using the Cancer codes, right. not the benign codes. Right. But Does that make sense? From the beginning one doesn't matter. Yeah, so the, but holding for the path for the first one shouldn't matter. All right, one more question. Ned. Okay. One more question. If I, I'm not sure why I'm not getting that point across. 
Does anybody have anything they want to add to that? That I somehow. You don't bill that day. I've said that about 500 times. I don't bill for anything until I see a path report. How's that? I know. Okay, moving on to the next question. One more question. An IND, if you do an IND, can you also bill an intralesional catalog on the same day? A what? If you do an IND and then you inject catalog into the, into the... Oh, yeah. You can do both So codes. can I do an IND or can I remove a keloid or anything else and can I inject a steroid? Yes. You can do both 11900 codes. is right. the catalog. Right. If it's in your office, use the J code for your drugs. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Next question. How are we doing on time, by the way? Oh, okay. Well, go take a break then. Good heavens. But go ahead. Um, if you're excising what you think is a Can cyst. Can you move closer, please? Sure. Um, I guess it's the same question. If you're excising a cyst and you're, you, it looks like a cyst, you're still doing a 238.2 because you if don't know. If it's a cyst and you know it's a cyst, are we talking about an inclusion cyst or an right, epidermal cyst? Right, epidermal cyst on the and back. That, are you willing to say that? That's up I, to you. I mean, I, I don't think it's an neoplasm. I guess it is uncertain because you don't know what it is. So well, again, that's a, clinical, that's a clinical answer. But I wouldn't have them. I don't know. If you don't know that it's a cyst and you don't know <laughs> what it is, then it's 238.2. Okay. When it comes back, God forbid I'm going to say this again, four days from now, <laughs> it's now an inclusion cyst. Okay. So now you can tell Mary, hey, Mary, that was an inclusion cyst. Everything's fine. Okay. And what do you charge for skin tags and removal of SKs? Does it? I can't tell you what anybody charges. That would be illegal for me to tell you that. Can you I can charge tell whatever you want? what the code says and the going right around the country, but you can have those private discussions among all the colleagues. So you can charge whatever you want? Well, it's called ethically. cash, remember? Right. So okay. if she says, well, you know, that doctor down the street will do it for 200 bucks. Right. Oh, well, if you go to Walmart, I can do it for 185 Okay. It's up to you. All right. Anything else, or we're going to take the rest of your break and then come on back? Yeah. They're telling me, go take a break. All right.